Sharing is how we build empathy for each other and understanding so that we can develop relationships and connection. You know, you need that. We don't always agree. You can't expect that. But I think if you can hear and listen and have empathy, that provides a way to keep people together. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome, thank you for joining us. I'm Susie Stadler, an architect by profession and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older. I'm also the producer of this program At Home on Air. For us, the meaning of being at home is twofold. First, it refers to how we can live and thrive in our home environments. And second, how we can come to feel at home with growing older in our wider communities and within ourselves. Laura Nova, a public artist and activist from New York is our guest in this episode. Laura makes being out and about in the city fun. Thank you, Laura, for being here. And thank you for inspiring us to see our cities as playgrounds. I also want to welcome my co-host, psychologist and board member Rachel Friedman. Since Laura's creative work touches both on space making and the art of human interactions, we have paired the architect slash psychologist perspectives for this conversation. Laura, you were an artist in residence in the New York City Department of Aging, but it seems what you really are is an artist in residence in the city. How much of your work is about making us feel more at home in our cities? And what does this mean? Thank you for inviting me to your on-air home and uh, being part of your community. For me, living in an urban environment, in a small home, square footage-wise, the extension of my home is public spaces around my building. In some ways, like the public park that I live next to, Seward Park in New York's Lower East Side, it's kind of like the living room of of my neighborhood. It's where multi-generations meet any morning. I'm there in the park, you know, with my dog. So I'm part of a dog community that likes to have our dogs play together. There's a lot of Chinese people who live in my neighborhood. So there happens to be some Tai Chi going on at the same time. There's kids going to school. There's so much that this space is used for. And that extension of the home into our public spaces really drives the participatory work that I do to be able to bring people together and connect with them in these public spaces. These are like everyday activities many of us do, but when you add your creativity and your artistry, what happens then? Can you give us a couple of examples of projects which evolved out of this being out and about in the city and at yeah. home in the city? The first project that I ever did in the public realm 
came about because I'm a runner and I was running lots of marathons and I was part of a running group. And this was a community that, you know, I spent a lot of time in Central Park along the East River. I really ran a lot. I decided I wanted to do a project involving the running community, but I actually ended up pairing with the Achilles Track Club, which is a running group for disabled athletes. We created a project together to really enhance their race experience. You can volunteer to help people who are blind, people who are in wheelchairs to be their running partners so that they can maneuver these races. So I wanted to use a race to enhance their race experience and being part of the running community, I wanted it to be very inclusive. We recorded about 35 Achilles Track Club runners' names and the melody of Handel's Hallelujah. When you're in one of these races, they put an RFID tag in your bib or on your shoe. So when you run through the finish line, it records your time. But I hacked into this system. And when these runners ran through the finish line, it sang their name in the melody of Handel's Hallelujah. We used like an acapella group. So it was very choir-like. It was really fun and enhanced their race experience. It was an audible experience, but it required the participation of the runner to actually move through the finish line. That sounds super fun. I wish this was happening at any race, like random hallelujahs when you come through the, <laughs> through the finish line. Laura, I feel like this kind of work has become even more important as we have gone through COVID. The city streets are not what they used to be, maybe more in New York than here. But I wonder if you can talk also about your newest project you have with the Urban Field Station in Newark City? Well, it just started, so I'm like kind of in research mode. The Urban Field Station is located in Queens, but there are urban field stations across the country. It's a collaborative arts residency program, so there are artists across the country that are part of a cohort. I had already been helping with the stewardship of the trees in my neighborhood. And of course, city trees, you know, need a lot of care to survive. And I was interested in relating it to my work with elders in my neighborhood. The Lower East Side is considered a naturally occurring retirement community because over 25% of the residents are over the age of 65. So I've been working with my elder neighbors for a while and thinking a lot about longevity and social isolation before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic. And the Surgeon General's report about social isolation really magnifies the issue. For the Urban Field Station Collaborative Arts Program, I really was interested in longevity, how we can live to 100, not just the elders, but the trees as well. Research shows for humans that social interaction, living with purpose, diet, you know, the blue zones, list of things that help us live longer, they actually apply to trees as well. And so my research proposal was to bring the elders with the trees and pair them up in like a tree pal relationship and have them both take care of each other. Of course, there's stewardship programs where you can help take care of a tree, but I'm also interested in the stories, maybe having elders talk to the trees, having conversations, phoning the trees, recording some of these stories and having some visual representations of this tree pal relationship. That's the idea. So it's also a little bit about comparing each other's aging experience, maybe, no? 
We all want to be centarians, healthy centarians. So it's about that. And urban trees, you know, we hope that they can live to about 100 as well. Rachel, do you want to hop in? Yeah, I came across this incredible description of one of your programs, a project called Delicious Memories that I wanted to read just to lead up to my question. And the description just for our audience is using craft and interactive technology This installation stitches intergenerational stories together into a sonic, multi-sensory, communal tablecloth embroidered with cotton and conductive thread. When touched, the tablecloth amplifies recorded audio stories. So I just wanted to give everybody a picture of how incredibly dynamic your projects are in using technology and touch and community creativity. I'm so moved by that because so much of our self-help and preventative health guidelines are so individualistic in nature. And we're encouraged to like eat well and meditate and exercise, but your work encourages this collective wellness. It's just really inspiring to me that by working together, we can contribute to not just our own health, but the health of the urban atmosphere and the health of the city. And so can you kind of like give us an idea of how the project, the Delicious Memories project that I just described contributed to that, contributed to the health of the people involved, but also the social wellness aspect of it? Well, that project started during the pandemic. I had been placed in a virtual senior center because all the senior centers were closed. Even though it was a residency for me to be in a senior center, I wanted to bring an intergenerational cohort together to work on the project. So I did open it up and we had ages 25 to 85 participate in Delicious Memories Just coming together in conversation and in storytelling, especially when you're isolated in the city and everybody's in their own apartments, just having people to talk to and tell stories with, you know, helps with that social wellness. But we were coming together for a purpose and Delicious Memories was used as a prompt. And I use storytelling and prompts to trigger these somatic kind of experiences, and that helps people connect to an instantaneous memory. And we asked everybody who participated to recall a delicious memory. If I ask this question to everybody here, I'm sure something instant comes to mind. You know, it could be food related, but we were looking for anything that was sensorial. One of my elder neighbors told a story about her bird. She actually had two stories that ended up being part of the talking tablecloth. But the first story really was about this bird that she lives with. She told the story about when she got it. There was a whole mix up about its gender and therefore its name. It was a very funny story. Part of her story was also that she wouldn't have survived the pandemic without the company of this bird. And it was really moving and and funny. And, you know, this is the impact of sharing stories with a group of people in a story circle or a Zoom square, whatever you want to call it. That's so beautiful. I encourage everybody to look at your website and just click on all your different projects because they're all so very different from each other. I have another collaborator that I work with, a filmmaker named Teresa Loon. We have this project called Feed Me a Story, and we started by creating a cooking show with our elder neighbors. And we ended up making this interactive billboard. You know how like in a Chinese restaurant, sometimes you order by number? 
So we created a billboard. There were like eight dishes on it. So you could order them by number. But what you would see when you ordered it was a documentary video about the neighbor chef that made the dish and the story behind the dish. I'm just so struck that you were appointed to be the first artist in residence at the New York City Department of Aging. It just strikes me as highly unusual for such a big bureaucratic department to hire an artist. What were they and you hoping that would accomplish? Or what do you think it accomplished? The Public Artists in Residence program, which started in New York City, I think they're on like their seventh cohort, but the first public artist in residence is Meryl Eucalys, and she still is actively in the Department of Sanitation. And her work on understanding the systems, how our city works and issues of maintenance and care inspired the commissioner of New York City at the time, it was Tom Finkelpearl, to initiate this public artist in residence program, but hire the artists and pay them because Meryl Eucalys was never paid. The way that the program works is that the city agencies apply to have an artist in residence and they have to have some sort of challenge that they want to work on. That year that I applied, and it was kind of an obvious fit, but the Department for Aging had put out the call that they were working on ageism. So, you know, I had done a lot of work in my neighborhood. It was a natural fit. And I think they were expecting that I would put on the spectacular interventions that I had a reputation for doing. Yeah, I think that was the expectation. There's a lot of joy and fun in my work while it's still talking about some serious issues and really connects people and makes people aware, but also activates public space and community to participate as well. When they introduced me to the like almost 800 city agency employees, you know, a lot of times people, they don't realize that an artist is someone who does something more than paint or work in clay, for example. So I had to also introduce myself, share what making art for the Department for Aging can mean and the type of work that I do. Maybe some people wouldn't define it as art at all, actually. So there was a little bit of making myself embedded in the community of the Department for Aging, getting to know everybody and participate in all of their meetings and trainings and really infiltrate the systems and understand the bureaucratic structure and how things work. And that's how you can then creatively try to figure out a way around the bureaucracy. I can imagine there's a lot of red tape. Yeah, it was very challenging. I learned a lot about getting stakeholder buy-in. And, you know, I've worked with communities that I'm invited or I'm a part of. You have to develop relationships and they take they take time. Like a public health measure that happens in all cities to bring this kind of playfulness and connection and purpose to the urban environment on the streets. Yeah, I think there are some municipal residencies on the West Coast. I don't remember if it's in San Francisco or L.A., but I do know that they're starting to pop up. You mentioned earlier in a private conversation that empathy is a big part of your work. What is the role of empathy in your work? Fundamentally, a lot of it is about storytelling and people sharing stories and experiences. That human-to-human contact 
sharing is how we build empathy for each other and understanding so that we can develop relationships and connection. You know, you need that. We don't always agree. You can't expect that. But I think if you can hear and listen and have empathy for a human being at a human level, that provides a way to keep people together and part of a hopefully a thriving dialogical community. In our case, in our country, we can really use that if we're going to try to elevate our democracy, which has been downgraded. Yeah, I think many of us could sort of relate to addressing difference with a conversation. You know, let's bring people together to talk about it. But most of us probably wouldn't come up with the idea of starting a cheerleading squad. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that program? There was tension between two groups using a public space. They were fighting over it, the use of it, the time for it. The younger basketball players and the elder group that was using it for Zumba classes. The idea was to get these two groups to play together and exercise together and find some way to, to bring them together and have empathy so that they could all share the space and be more understanding. We did some fitness exchange, what became the Silver Sirens cheerleading squad, learned how to play basketball and the basketball players, you know, learned some dance moves and cheerleading moves. And that was the start of Silver Sirens. As we solved that problem within the small community, we extended out and we cheered about healthcare and ageism. We cheered at the New York City Marathon, as well as a rally for ageism that was going on in the city. The only reason we stopped was because the pandemic, you know, we weren't able to, to come together anymore. The ingenuity and the creativity is just so inspiring. Oh, I forgot. We did make a cheerleading video. And there's this poster that we made that you could learn the moves. The public could design their own. And then this poster was distributed to the public on the street as part of a festival. But we also were in a trilingual newspaper that got distributed in the neighborhood. So everybody could become a silver siren or an activist. Like provide these tools so that people can participate. For those of us who are inspired, are there concrete things that you think we could do in our own cities, even if they're much less urban than New York City, to be a creative activist and bring people together and create bridges? Any activity that you like to do, there's a way to put a creative spin on it to generate a group of people to share and participate. We all can throw a party. I often get involved in things that bring me joy, like taking care of the trees or walking or exercising. These are fundamental to how I get to know my community too. Participating and being part of things that you enjoy can ultimately lead to these community-engaged activities. I think you're encouraging all of us to be a little bit more brave, to step out of our comfort zone, to A, participate in those things, and B, encourage others to do it. Well, you can like go on your park's website. I'm sure it's an extensive system in San Francisco. There's probably a lot going on in individual parks. Like I said, in my community, there's an actual volunteering structure already set up to help steward the trees. They're doing tree care right in my neighborhood. So it makes it very convenient. I don't have to go to another borough. It just so happens that most of the things I get involved in, I like think of creative spins to, to get more people to come and get involved as well. That's the magic.
You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. One comment that I want to respond to from Candice in Australia, they have a program set up where in order to take care of their trees, they gave all the trees a phone number so that you could call the tree and like report on, you know, if there's maybe a branch is broken or there's something going on with the tree. But what happened was the people of Australia started leaving messages. Like some of them were like love letters and other stories about how it's their favorite tree and their view out their window. And so it kind of expanded the purpose of what those phone numbers were for. And I need to correct myself. They gave them email addresses. Yeah, you could write. Yes, I certainly was very inspired by what was going on in Australia. That story actually inspired my proposal to the Urban Field Station and the Tree Pal idea. My proposal, I want to hear the voices of my elders and hear the stories. So I'm proposing phone numbers. Well, I think it can be both. I mean, they could write their Tree Pal, they could phone their tree, but the idea also is to have a a pal so that you can foster that relationship long-term because we all have a future no matter what age we are. Yes, it, it seems like a totally ingenious proposal and idea. And it's amazing that you can connect and build a relationship with trees. You can build a relationship with homes, you know, <laughs> with your city. You can write your neighborhood a letter. Yasmin asks about the Lower East Side Citizen Parade, which I have to admit is also one of my favorite <laughs> because you'd put a twist on a parade and maybe you can share this a little bit. Well, that parade took a couple of years to plan. And originally it was going to be part of this festival. And the theme of the festival was migration, immigration, and then the festival fell apart. We had raised money to produce this project and the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council helped raise more money so that we could be part of another festival called River to River, which happens between the East River and the Hudson River of Lower Manhattan. They commissioned lots of projects besides ours, but we were still going with the migration, immigration theme, the history, you know, Ellis Island people would get off and end up on the Lower East Side and subsequent waves of immigration and migration have brought us to today, large waves of Chinese, Asian, Puerto Rican, and other Latin American immigration that really has centered on the Lower East Side. So we wanted to bring all these different people together in this parade. And of course, it was going to have dance. We collaborated with a choreographer, Naomi Goldberg-Haas. She is the artistic director of a dance company called Dances for a Variable Population. My part in developing this idea of storytelling and how can we tell a story about migration was to really talk about what the experiences of the neighbors had been in their immigration and migration to the neighborhood. In these workshops, and a lot of them are dance and movement related. We also did storytelling workshops, asking the question, what would you take with you if you had to move? I should also state that 
we have gentrification in our neighborhood. So there's lots of people who have to move also, and people are being pushed out as real estate has become unaffordable. So what would you take with you if you had to move or as many of them had moved here already, what did they bring with them? A lot of people came up with your typical, you know, you want to take all your china or your shoes and your jewelry, but also history and language and respect. And there was lots of responses telling our stories about our immigration and migration experiences. And those stories became part of the dances that we choreographed, as well as the floats that we produced that were part of the parade. We designed these big floats with moving boxes, and they were stamped with the stories that people told about what they take with them. And the boxes were also used as props as part of these dances as well. And then, of course, we used a lot of the cultural-specific experiences besides the story of migration. We used Chinese music, Jewish music, and we had a Latinx number, a big Latinx number. It was really great. We marched down East Broadway into Seward Park, which is the oldest municipal park in the United States. And then in the center of the park, there's a stage that we created where all these dance numbers that I had just referred to played out. Laura, I mean, this is pretty serious work and took a long time, but then it ended in... in a dance party. Yes, it was fun. I'm just wondering if this has a lasting change in the community among the people who participate. I don't know if you ever followed this. We were in workshops for several months. We had a lot of older dancers, but we brought in younger folks and families. It was an intergenerational procession, but it did highlight the older folks in dance and movement. All these people really wouldn't have had any intersectionality, but now they see each other, their neighbors. There's some language barriers, but there's a bridging of communities and, you know, just being able to say hello to neighbors at the grocery store. Really, the lasting impact is that we all celebrated our neighborhood together in what I like to call the living room of the Lower East Side. There's so much playfulness in all of your projects, which just feels like such a relief. Your work addresses like huge issues of gentrification and immigration and loneliness and climate change, and they can be so, so heavy. So I just appreciate the playfulness. You have to bring joy to these experiences. Otherwise, you know, that's a downer. You don't want to participate in a in a sad parade (laughs) and you can't make change unless you can create engaging, joyful experiences and feel like you have hope and possibility to to make those changes. I would also add that there's sometimes some humor in these experiences and the sort of absurdity of these experiences. Then that puts that that empathy factor back into it because we're all just trying to, you know, make the world a better place. Yes. Ava asks, it seems like movement is a big focus of a lot of your work. What is it about often overlooked human movement that you draw your inspiration from? Well, early on, I learned that movement triggers memory. And that's how I started to really be inspired by the stories that could come about by doing movement-based work. And of course, my own love of walking and running and 
moving just all the time that I spend in the city traversing it. I live near three bridges. I walk across them or run across them. All of those things really have made me motivated, curious to discover different ways to to trigger those stories and memories from people. Rita says, my Greek Jewish grandparents lived on Broom Street and founded, and I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce it correctly, Kahila Kadosha Yanina Synagogue. It's yes. an annual Greek festival that brings together all peoples in the Lower East Side. Have you been there? Yeah, they teach you how to do dances as well at their festival. And Howard says, how are you finding the Department of Aging is embracing your work? I wonder about your visibility within the department and how your colleagues may be impacted by your work, if this is an objective of the Artist in Residence program. Remember when I had said that my initial response to the challenge of the Department for Aging was that they wanted someone to work on this problem of ageism. I didn't really find that that compelling, actually. And after my embedding period, I convinced them that, in fact, we needed to work on social isolation. And so I had geared my proposal of what I was going to do as my project, talking about social isolation. During that time, about midway through, the pandemic broke out, and then everybody was like, you know, talking about social isolation. And so I became very popular. My contract has been completed and I have departed, but the work does continue on. And while I was there, I wrote a report that brought together a lot of stakeholders. And I wanted to really get the voices of all these experts, outside experts, not just the Department of Aging, to really talk about social isolation and the challenge of intersectionality, intergenerational gatherings, also that a lot of us are siloed in our age groups in the social structure. I was asked by the commissioner before we started to convene in these design sessions about social isolation to try to figure out what could we design to improve the situation. So the commissioner wanted to rebrand senior centers, and that inspired me to come up with this design for the future and rename all those senior centers social clubs. And not just a rename and a rebrand, but also really changing the idea of what it means to meet in a space. At that time, we couldn't meet in the senior center. So rethinking public space entirely. The report was a result of bringing all these designers, chefs and exercise physiologists and social workers, architects, and all sorts of people that you wouldn't necessarily affiliate with the Department for Aging, but really getting everybody to think divergently about what could this social club idea be. And this generated this report, New York City Social Club Design for the Future. And the report, which is like basically a policy, brought on this idea of innovation in senior centers, what they could be and where they could be and how we meet. There was one aspect of the report and part of my project was delivering these sort of cultural meals to people as part of Meals on Wheels. The Met subsequently created a partnership with Meals on Wheels and they deliver a curated box related to collections or the museum and those get delivered with the Meals on Wheels. I hope that the report, and I think it has inspired a lot of these innovative ideas and rethinking place and places of social connection. 
Yes, the social club, just changing the name makes a huge difference. Larry asks, and I think you do have a project that relates to this. He says, have you organized projects around homebound older people to tap their stories in creativity? The report was certainly part of that work. Before that happened, I created a project called Spiels on Wheels. I think it was launched in the fall of 2019. It was before the pandemic because I was part of a festival where we distributed these. They looked like meal replicas that you would get if you were part of a Meals on Wheels program. But we were distributing the same sort of meals to people on the street to get them to think about the people who were isolated in their homes. And when you opened it up, it was a replica, right? So it wasn't real food. It was a photograph, which was also a postcard. The postcard had a QR code on it about a few homebound folks telling stories about their experiences. And it also had a prompt on it to invite you to write a story to be sent to someone who is isolated at home receiving these meals. That preceded the social club report that I wrote. Laura, you're also an educator. You're part of a teaching group at the new school. I don't know if this is still going on in a course called Care Lab. Rachel and I were both intrigued by educating the next generation about a different way of delivering civic services. I was helping design the curriculum and participating in it. And then in the fall, we ran the class for the graduate students, but they were from across the universities. We had transdisciplinary design students, but then there was a PhD student whose research centered on Black maternal mortality. There was another PhD student doing his in architecture. And so he was interested in community gardens. The students were very diverse, but the premise of the class was to really talk about ways to bring care to society. We were trying to help the students learn how to partner with people in community that were aligned with their care topics. They all got to choose things that were of interest to them and that they were connected to. And then because they were from so many disciplines, the way that they would carry that innovation out was across the gamut. Some really great projects got started. And so like the hope is, of course, that they'll continue their research and, you know, put these ideas out in the world. I think a lot of social innovation actually does start in collaborative, participatory classrooms. We looked at this project called Death Over Dinner. It did begin in someone's graduate class, like an international storytelling platform. It's a serious subject, but quite humorous too, in the way that it's launched and the tools that they provide. I certainly try to convey that, you know, to bring serious topics, some joy and humor is also part of it. But yeah, that's what Care Lab was about. If I'm not like collaborating with my neighbors to create these projects, I want other people to make their own. So what better place to do that in like a design lab? Wow. Inspiring, Laura. It's really all about getting us out and connecting us with creativity and being prepared to take some risks and be courageous. So thank you, Laura, for doing your art. I hope that every city will hire artists for bringing joy into their neighborhoods. I think that's a no-brainer. I want to give a shout out for our next conversation with Walter Hood on March 14. He's a 
internationally renowned landscape architect. His work focuses on bringing people together and animating neighborhoods. He has done this for a long time. He also looks at how people really use space, not just putting cookie cutter solutions there, but how to enhance this with his work. If you know somebody who would enjoy our talks, let them know about them and encourage them to come and join our learning community. Thank you all and good luck Thank on you. your next project, Laura. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Bye-bye. <laughs>